Hey guys, I have a special surprise for you today. We've brought on several authors through the years, but I can honestly say this is a treat for me because this is without a doubt my favorite author. Uh, and obviously that's no disrespect to the other authors we come on. It's just that uh, this gentleman has a hometown flavor to him and uh, it just is something that's uh, special to me to be able to have him on. So without further ado, please welcome uh, David Domine. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on. So, David, this is this is what's amazing to me. Right off the bat, your story, there are so many books that you've done, four, five, six books at least, on the city of Louisville, more um, specifically, Old Louisville. And you're not even from Louisville or the state. Am I correct in that? Yeah, that's true. I, I was born in Wisconsin and raised there. I ended up in Louisville in the 90s. I was just kind of passing through i was planning on going to graduate school for a year or two and i really had no desire to come to kentucky but i just ended up here and uh, i ended up loving it i never left and uh, louisville uh, turned out to be a great city for me and uh, especially old louisville the old part of town with lots of victorian mansions it kind of uh, captivated me and i think one of the reasons that I started writing my books was that, you know, a lot of times people don't appreciate what they have in their own backyards. And in Kentucky, people are kind of understated. They don't, you know, toot their own, own horn very often. So sometimes it takes an outsider to kind of see uh, the things that are special about a place where you live. And, uh, you know, that one year, two years I was supposed to be here, that's turned into over 25 years now. So uh, I've spent half of my life in Louisville now, so I consider it my, my hometown now. And I love uh, letting people know what an interesting place it is. And for me, ghost stories turned out to be a good vehicle to do that. Now, you, the other thing that I found fascinating is you've actually studied abroad, in, uh, from my understanding, in Austria, and, and now you're t a teacher at Bellarmine. Is that still correct? With uh, teaching? Yeah, I teach uh, at the university, and I studied to be an interpreter and a translator. So, yeah, I lived all over. Most of my 20s, I was in Europe. I lived in Mexico. I lived in, uh, volunteered in the Philippines for a time. So I love to travel, and uh, I've uh, spent uh, spent uh, some interesting time abroad. I love I love being in different countries. Really cool. Now you were some of your writing I know has to do about food. Tell me a little bit about how the, how that got started. Um, well, one, another thing that won me over when I came to Kentucky is, um, especially Louisville, there was a great food scene, and uh, I started off as a food writer. I wrote cookbooks, and I used to write restaurant reviews and things like that. In Kentucky, it's just a very interesting state. There's with tobacco and horses and bourbon, there's just a lot of things that are, you know, distinctly Kentucky. And that has kind of left its mark on the food scene. And so I was I was fascinated by, you know, Kentucky cooking and, and Kentucky ingredients and things like that. And that's kind of what got me into food writing and, and cookbooks when I was here. And then when I was writing my first cookbook, I ended up living in a house on Third Street in Old Louisville was built in 1895, six bedroom, three story, old Chateau West Coast. And uh, the first year I lived there, you know, I was working on this cookbook about Kentucky uh, cooking. And uh, the woman I bought the house from just kind of offhandedly mentioned that the house was haunted. Uh, 
and I love ghost stories. I've always been fascinated by the paranormal, but I'm kind of a skeptic myself. So I've always said seeing is believing. You know, when I see a ghost, that's when I'll start believing in them. So I wasn't really worried when she told me these crazy stories about, you know, this ghost that came with the house. But that first year I lived in the house, I was working on my cookbook, testing recipes. All these weird things started happening in the house. All the things she warned me about, footsteps in the middle of the night and pictures always falling off this one particular wall in the butler's pantry next to the kitchen. And that's what got me into writing about paranormal things. I'd always loved uh, the paranormal growing up. I was just fascinated by you know true ghost stories and things like that. So I realized um, there was a wealth of kind of haunted history in that neighborhood where I was living, old Louisville. Uh, it's another thing a lot of Kentuckians don't know about, but in Louisville, just south of the downtown area, is one of the largest historic preservation districts in the United States. Old Louisville has like 45 square blocks, roughly um, uh, over 1,400 old mansions, uh, old Victorian houses. They've been around on average 130 years, so they've seen some history. And uh, a lot of those houses come with stories. There's been legends that have been passed down. And living in the neighborhood, talking to people, that's when I discovered there was this wealth of haunted history. And that gave me the idea to start writing down the ghost stories as my kind of way to contribute to the neighborhood to kind of preserve the oral traditions and the history and the legends and in doing so chronicle more than just the haunted history you know i always tell people ghost stories are a lot more than just ghosts you don't have to believe in ghosts to enjoy a good ghost story there's paranormal and you know supernatural elements but there's real life characters there's local history and flavor so I started writing the ghost stories down as a way of just promoting the neighborhood, you know, using the ghost stories as a vehicle to get people interested in that neighborhood. And that's kind of how I got into it all. And it's funny you mentioned what you did about the, the, the ghost stories, because we always say on here, even though we're a paranormal show, probably 75% of each story we tell is history, you know, mm -hmm. 25% oh, yeah. paranormal. Yeah, yeah. I think people, you know, they like to be scared, but they like to learn things as well and find out things about where they live, you know, that make the area special, that make them kind of feel part of an interesting place. And if there is a haunting, typically it's because of something that's happened that's triggered that. So, I mean, you want to know the backstory. I mean, nobody wants to watch yeah. a movie and just see the ending. They want to see the rest yeah. of it. Yeah, and what's always interesting about a ghost story, there's usually some kind of mystery there, you know, there's an apparition or something moves, something happens, it makes people stop and think, and then um, they find out about the history, and that's when they find out about the real life characters and, you know, the explanations for why there might be uh, an apparition, uh, why there might be a ghost haunting a place, you know, it gives an answer to this mystery. People, people love to be scared, they also love mystery, they love you know, figuring things out and putting things together, kind of explaining things. So I think that's one of the reasons ghost stories are so appealing. And you're an excellent storyteller, not only in the books, but in person. Uh, I've seen you tell a couple of stories on, on some videos that you have out, but also, and you could tell me, I, I didn't research this part, but you were at one point doing historical tours of some of the neighborhoods down there. Are you still doing those? Yeah. Um, so this uh, March will start up again, and this will be 
like the 16th year I've been doing tours in old Louisville. So I still live in Louisville. I just moved out of the neighborhood. I live in the Highlands neighborhood now. But um, eight months out of the year, seven days a week, we offer history and architecture tours during the day. And then at night, um, we have a haunted history tour kind of based on my books. And that is how the tour started. When I was working on my first book, I started working with neighborhood associations, doing ghost tours and the Victorian Ghost Walk to get people down there kind of as a fundraiser. And after my first book came off, came out, it just kind of spun, uh, spun off this whole little cottage industry. People wanted to see the places they were reading about in my books. And um, so I've been telling these stories in some form or other, you know, for 16, 17 years now. So I've kind of learned what to do to keep people interested, and I kind of know what people like. So 20 years ago, I would have never considered myself a storyteller. But now that I do these tours and um, tell stories in front of people, I've kind of learned there's a real craft to storytelling. There's a skill to it. And I've kind of slowly come to embrace it, and now I do consider myself a storyteller. David, we're going to talk about some of the books, and I don't expect you to remember like all the stories that are in each book because I'm sure they kind of start running together at some point. But what I do want you to do or tell me is, is kind of some stories from old Louisville that just really stood out to you. What are Out of all these years of researching and writing these books, what are st two or three of the stories that just really have stood out to you as, as your favorites? Yeah, well, one of my favorites is one that's, been getting a lot of attention lately it's in it was in my last two books and it's in my upcoming book a true crime a true crime book about a murder that took place in Louisville several years ago but it's called the witch's tree and uh, i i love to walk and i usually walk two hours a day even when i'm not giving tours and i love walking around in the middle of the night and um, just a couple blocks from the house where I was living, it's at the corner of Six and Park, was this gnarled and twisted tree. It had jagged branches. Uh, the canopy, half of the branches were dead. And the tree itself was gnarled and twisted, covered in these big, warty growths known as burls. And this, the tree itself just looked fascinating. It just it looked like someone had carved. It was so unreal looking. And walking by, I would notice... Um, things hanging on the tree I would see like bottles hanging from branches or chicken bones or like an old coin or a horseshoe wedged in a crevice here and there once in a while I'd see like a doll on the tree and I always wondered about that but then one um, one night I met someone at the tree it was um, it was actually a, a gypsy woman who was passing through town and because of her, I found out Louisville has this really interesting gypsy past. In the 20s and 30s, it was kind of considered the gypsy headquarters, you know, for this, the eastern side of the United States. And um, meeting her and then meeting some other people, I was able to piece together this story. And supposedly, the witch's tree was the result of a curse that was put on the city back in the 1890s. So they said back in the day there was a tall maple tree that used to stand at that corner and a local coven of witches they said would meet at this tree every night and under its branches they cast their spells they they do their you know rituals and brew their potions and do the things that witches do and it went on that 
way for years. But in 1889, the city announced their plans to chop down that tree because they wanted to use it for the upcoming May Day celebrations. They wanted to use it as a, a maypole. And uh, when the witches got wind of this, they warned the city, you know, don't you dare chop down our tree. If you do, there'll be a terrible price to pay. But um, they didn't take witches seriously in Louisville, I guess. And someone came, they chopped the tree down. Uh, it came crashing to the ground. And when it did, the witches went shrieking off to the West End, where back then there were still forests. Uh, they went to find a new maple tree where they could hide out. But before they left, the head witch turned around and she cursed the city. And her final words were, beware, Louisville, beware, 11th month. And no one really heeded her warning. May 1st came. They danced around the maypole afterwards. They chopped it up and burnt the logs in a big Whitsuntide bonfire, as was custom. And people promptly forgot about the witches. They promptly forgot about the warning, and they thought that was that. But uh, 11 months later, 11 months to the day, they were reminded of the curse because that was the day the witches took their revenge. And it came in the form of a massive tornado that came barreling out of their forest in the West. And uh, it was the you know curse coming to fruition. They had spent this 11 months in their new forest conjuring and uh, brewing up this tornado as, as their revenge. And they sent it into Louisville and it destroyed most of what was downtown Louisville back then. Within four minutes, hundreds of uh, mansions and homes were blown to bits. The whole downtown corridor, Whiskey Row, uh, was obliterated. The train station, hospitals, churches, schools were destroyed. Um, well over 100 people were killed in the end. And of those people killed, they said a good number belonged to something known as the May Day Celebration Committee. So the ones who chopped down the tree, they got their comeuppance in the end. And when the tree roared out of town, it went south, and for a time it went down 6th Street through Old Louisville, or what's Old Louisville today. And when it came to the corner where the tall maple tree where the witches used to meet uh, used to stand, they said a bolt of lightning shot out of this tornado, and it hit the stump of the old tree. There was a huge explosion, and the tree that's there today sprang up from the earth in a shower of sparks and flame and smoke to replace the tree that was stolen from the witches. And it looks nothing like the tree that used to be there. It's all gnarled and twisted and spooky looking, which they say is good for witches. And not surprising, the witches, they say, return to that corner. And today they say you'll still see witches um, meeting there. And so people, they stop by the tree. It's become a tourist attraction. And they leave beads and trinkets and charms and uh, things as offering for the witches to kind of make amends, to kind of uh, show that they they won't steal the tree from them again. And I know uh, local witches and uh, new age modern witches, they do meet there uh, today. There's a Facebook page. It's called The, the Witches Tree. And um, there's three uh, neighborhood witches who who operate that page. And what's interesting is um, if you go to the page, you can see the things that have been left on the tree over the years. And uh, often if, if you leave something on the tree, the witches will give you kind of a good luck spell or a blessing. People unfortunately steal a lot of things from the tree. So if that happens, they'll put curses on people as well. So you can see some of the curses that have been levied on people over the years and just um, uh, see some of the things that have been left there. It's a really, it's a really fascinating uh, space in Old Louisville. 
And, and that's one of my favorite stories. I got uh, a friend of ours visiting from Australia about oh, two really? years ago, yeah. and we uh-huh. I took her down there and showed her the tree and drove her around uh, St. James Court uh-huh. and the fountain and all that. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, that witch's tree is, it's as far as I'm concerned, it's like you couldn't have picked a better story to tell. Yeah, I mean, and you just look at the tree, you know there's a story there, you know. Um, the tree just looks so interesting. Even if it didn't have things hanging from it, you can you can tell there's a history to that tree. Tell me a story from over in uh, uh, the St. James area there. I know you've got the, the pink oh, yeah. mansion there, and then you've got the little boy at the fountain. Now, tell me tell me a story from over in that neck of the woods. Yeah, there's there's four or five places on St. James Court that are supposedly haunted. And St. James Court, for people who don't know, is kind of the residential enclave of Old Luo, these 45 square blocks. So back um, in the 1880s, 1883 to be exact, Louisville hosted something called the Southern Exposition. It was a kind of early world's fair. And back then, the area that sold Louisville was kind of outside the city limits. It was, wasn't was very uh, much developed. So uh, as a way of attracting people to the city and promoting commerce and business in the, um, the southern, uh, what they call it the southwest back then, part of the country, the city of Louisville, uh, the Board of Trade, they built this massive wooden building. It was said to be the largest wooden building in the world at the time. It measured 600 by 900 square feet. And uh, they boasted in newspapers around the globe, they had like an advertising campaign talking about, you know, this being a wonder of the modern world, this huge wooden building. And it turned out that was a gimmick to get people to come to this, this Southern Exposition. It was a kind of early world's fair. And they weren't sure they were going to get enough people to come, but they had nothing to worry about. In the first 88 days they were open, they sold something like 777,000 tickets. And instead of lasting for 100 days as was planned, it spread out over five years. Hmm. And in those five years, Louisville exploded in population. All these people coming because of the Southern Exposition led to this huge building boom. So that part of the city was kind of annexed and after they tore down that massive building they put a planned community there it was modeled after london neighborhood so it's roughly six square blocks it's got a big grassy boulevard and um people who bought land there they agreed that they would only build their houses of stone or brick their mansions and it became the most um, exclusive address in the city and led to a huge building boom and 10 years later that whole part of the city was was full up and people started going further out to commuter neighborhoods but it's kind of the epicenter of the neighborhood and at the very center of st james court there's a beautiful fountain kind of the symbol of the neighborhood it's called the fountain at st james court it's a statue of venus that was uh, installed in 1897 and uh it's kind of a, a timely story because we just had our first really good snow here in louisville and everything's white and beautiful and when you get your first good snowfall that's when they see the most famous ghost on saint james court they call him the ice boy and the ice boy is kind of a ghostly ragamuffin a seven or eight year old boy Uh, he's always in tattered clothes kind of looks poor people who've seen him said he's kind of dirty he has like soot and ash on his face and his hands 
and they always see him kind of running around the fountain and right across the street there's a huge apartment building there's actually two and there's one of our famous walking courts that go between them so in old louisville and other parts of the city we have these areas where where streets might normally be um they close it off and they instead of having traffic go through they just have a single or a double walkway so it's pedestrian only areas they're called walking courts and um across from the fountain is a fountain court it goes out to fourth street and they see the ghost of the ice boy there as well and often they'll see him in the the lobby of the big apartment building and supposedly his haunting goes back to that apartment building it was built in 1897 uh, it was built by Theophilus Conrad. He lived in the big mansion on the corner, the Conrad Caldwell House Museum. They called it Conrad's Castle back in the day. And that place is haunted as well, like the Pink Palace. But um, it was like a six-level apartment building built in the middle of this residential enclave. And it really um, it made a lot of the neighbors angry because it was twice as tall as the normal structure down there most people didn't build anything more than three stories tall because these were single family houses so when the plans were announced that mr conrad was going to build this six-story apartment block the neighbors banded together to prevent him from you know ruining the streetscape of saint james court and they took him to court but mr conrad prevailed supposedly he uh, was a friend of the judge and the judge sided with him and gave him the go-ahead and he built this six-story tall building the building's still there today but if you see it today it's not six stories tall it's only three stories tall what happened was in 1912 um, a cold snowy night in february it was the coldest night of the year a fire broke out up on the top floor uh, the official report said like a gentleman had discarded his cigar and it caught the drapes on fire um but neighborhood rumor was that a disgruntled neighbor had set the fire as an act of revenge for mr conrad building this building much taller than it should have been in any case it was a terrible fire the whole top of the building was engulfed in flames people were hanging out the windows fire brigades came they extinguished the fire and fortunately they got everyone out no one died and the next morning people half the city turned out to st james court to behold this miraculous sight because as the fire brigades were putting out the fire the water kind of froze in place over this huge building and it turned it into kind of a, a you know a, a living stalagmite kind of rising from st james court this ice covered uh, charred ruin was there and uh, the by that time, Mr. Conrad had died, so the new owner of the building, instead of trying to rebuild the whole thing, he removed the top portion, the upper three floors, and he restored the bottom three floors. So in the end, the neighbors got what they wanted, nothing more than three stories tall on St. James Court. And um, a year later, basically after the building was restored, uh, they had kind of a dedication ceremony for the new building. But by then, uh, people had been reporting sightings of this ghostly ragamuffin running around the fountain and in the walking court between the two apartment buildings in the lobby, you know, of the burnt-out building. And um, 
people started asking around, you know, who could this be? No one knew what it was, but they started calling him the Ice Boy because he had made his first appearance after the first snowfall of the year. Well, at the dedication ceremony, the mayor was speaking, or some city dignitary, and uh, a gypsy woman appeared in the audience and started cursing at people. She was speaking, you know, her Romany language, and um, she had kind of arrived to announce that uh, a curse had been placed on the neighborhood because of the treatment of her son. And it turns out, you know, the newspaper said nobody had died in that terrible fire that February evening in 1912, but supposedly someone had died. There was a young boy. Uh, he lived in the nearby cabbage patch. He was the, the gypsy woman's son. He was out that night. He worked as a grocery delivery boy. He was making some extra money for the family. And he was up on the top floor when the fire broke out. He uh, had dropped off the box of groceries. It was freezing cold out, so he was trying to warm up before he had to go back out into the blustery weather. And he was trapped up there when the fire broke out. The fire brigades found his body huddled in a corner. But um, because he was like a poor ragamuffin, not from one of the wealthy families on the court, they said they never really acknowledged his death like they would have for another child. And supposedly his ghost started to appear to look for that recognition that was denied him, you know, after his death. And it's always after the first big snowfall or the first big frost in the neighborhood that people see him. He's definitely the most famous ghost we have on St. James Court. It's such a sad story. And you can see that possibly being a true story just because of the time mm -hmm. that it was and... And, mm -hmm. you know, the clientele that lived in that area, you, you could see that that mm -hmm. could possibly be yeah. something really happened. And that's one of my favorite stories because it's like so many of the stories in the neighborhood in that, you know, there's always a fine line between fact and fiction. And sometimes you don't know where the fiction starts and the facts end. Um What's true is that apartment building was there. There was that fire. All that stuff is documented. But what we don't have proof of is that that little boy died. Right. Uh, and that's how a lot of the stories are, I find, in the neighborhood. There's some kind of legend. There's some kind of story. And when you try to kind of track things down, sometimes you are able to piece it together the story and find the actual figures but sometimes like with the witch's tree the tornado happened that tree is there there's lots of oral tradition of witches being in the neighborhood but there's no proof of the witches and there's no proof of the curse you know so a lot of these stories half the stuff is concrete you can provide facts and figures uh the other half of this stuff you don't know if it's been embellished over the years or just stories have you know, uh, been, you know, embellished as people pass them on. But a lot of these kind of have legend characteristics. And, you know, legends are inherently false. They're not true. But usually at the core of every legend, there's some kind of kernel of truth. There's something that gives rise to a legend. And that's what I think is fascinating in Old Louisville. There's so many of these stories and legends that do tie in to the real life local history. But um, some of them are hard to, to prove. And you know, you can't prove a, le a legend anyway, but these stories, uh, I think it's really fascinating when I do 
talk to people and I am able to dig up some kind of historical background that kind of puts a face on these modern day hauntings we're hearing about. David, I want to give a quick plug to some of your uh, older books, and then I want to talk to you about a new project you got coming out. So anybody who uh-huh. is interested in some of the stories that David's told, like I said, there's a couple of stories. There's so many more that he hasn't even been able to touch on. Um, go to Amazon.com, look up David Domine, and I'm going to put uh, a link into our site. But some of the books that are out there, True Ghost Stories and Eerie Legends from America's Most Haunted Neighborhood. Uh, you've got uh, Phantoms of Old Louisville. Ghost of Old Louisville, which I have right in front of me, and I've used that book for some research on the Old Louisville stories we've done. Uh, Haunts of Old Louisville, and you got Voodoo Days of La Casa Fabulosa. Uh-huh. All those are books that are based, you know, on, on Louisville and a lot of the hauntings and stuff like that. But tell me a little bit about a project you was telling me about earlier about a, a gruesome murder that happened in, in Louisville mm-hmm. that you're doing a, a an upcoming book on. Yeah, um, and before I tell you about that, I'll just I'll clarify about the the ghost books. So the uh, Ghost of Old Louisville that you have that was my first book that came out in two thousand five, and then people wanted more. So the next year I wrote Phantoms of Old Louisville, and a couple years later I wrote Haunts of Old Louisville. So those were the first three. But what happened is a couple of years ago took those three books and I kind of edited and updated them into kind of a best of collection. And that's the true ghost stories and eerie legends from America's most haunted neighborhood. Because what happened is over the years, people got in touch with me and they said, Oh, that was my grandmother uh, whose house you wrote about on sixth street. Or uh, that was my great aunt who died, uh, you know, on Brook street. And here's her, uh, here's her picture and here's her death certificate. So I was able to take the most popular stories from those first three books and edit and update them and then put them in that one book so if people are looking to get a good overview i would get the last book true ghost stories and eerie legends from america's most haunted neighborhood because that has 75 percent of those three books put together in one book nice. and it's a more current uh, more current edition and then the voodoo days at la casa fabulosa that was the memoir uh, that's my last book that's the the story of that first year I was in the house as I was working on the cookbook and all these strange things were happening. And so I write about the weird paranormal or would-be paranormal events in the house as I'm living, kind of getting accustomed to the neighborhood. And what I discovered is, yeah, there were creepy things in the neighborhood and in my house happening, but what was really interesting was the real-life characters I was meeting in the neighborhood. That's when I found out about the witch's tree and about the gypsies in the neighborhood and things like that. So Voodoo Days at La Casa Fabulosa, that's my 12th book, my last one. And that's the the memoir about that first year, year and a half I lived in the house when all these spooky things were happening. And that's how I really got into the spooky stuff in the neighborhood. That's kind of how I got involved. But my, um, my upcoming book, if things go well, it should be on the shelves by October of this year, and it's called A Dark Room in Glitterball City. It will be out by Pegasus Books. But um, I mentioned this in Voodoo Days as well. Right after I moved out of my house on 3rd Street, um, I thought about buying another house just a couple blocks away 
around the corner on 4th Street and decided against that the house needed quite a bit of work. But it was a huge, you know, 11, 12 bedroom place, had a wine cellar in the basement. It was just a beautiful place, but it needed a little too much work and it was kind of big. So I ended up coming to my current house in the Highlands instead. Well, a year later, I was watching the news one morning and all of a sudden the news flash was that a body had been discovered in a mansion in old Louisville. And I looked up and on the TV screen was that house that I had considered buying. (laughs) And it turns out that the guy who lived there, uh, he and his boyfriend were accused of killing another guy in a romantic encounter and burying him in, in that wine cellar down there. And that led to a scandalous set of trials three years later that just kind of rocked the neighborhood and rocked the city. And I sat through those trials because I don't know if you've read the book by John Barrent uh, about Savannah, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. We have. I realized a lot of the things I was writing about the neighborhood, I was doing like John Barron was, looking for the quirky, the fascinating things about old Louisville. And as I found out more about this uh, alleged murder, I realized that was my book about old Louisville. So I sat through those trials. It was fascinating. Um, basically, the two guys turned on each other, blamed each other. But uh, one of them was acquitted, uh, except for a couple minor charges, but he was acquitted of the major things like murder. murder. The other one, he was convicted of murder, and he's in prison today. But it turns out there was just so much more than just a simple murder. The guy they murdered uh, was also a well-known drag queen, and the two guys living in the house had been counterfeiting money in the house, were weird CIA connections. Uh, other people had died and reportedly been killed in the house. It was known to be a haunted house for years in the neighborhood. And uh, in the 30s and 40s for a time, it was a sanatorium. There was a, a guy named Dr. Bandine uh, doing unethical things there, they said. Supposedly there was kind of a secret Catholic cult meeting in the wine cellar. And there were rumors of a satanic cult being there as well. Just all these bizarre things. And um, so the book that's coming out in the fall is all about this. You know, the trial, how it affected the neighborhood, what happened at the trial. And once again, you know, the real life interesting characters that I met along the way, the ones that kind of helped me piece together what actually happened in the house. Yeah, it's a fascinating story, and and it's like you said the the similarities to Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil mm-hmm. are it is amazing. And I, to be honest with you, I didn't even think about that till you mentioned it. But we, I was actually just talking about that situation the other day about uh-huh. the statue that's on the cover of that book uh, came from St. Bonaventure Cemetery and became so famous yeah. after the book was replaced. Uh, or came out that yeah. they took that statue and donated it to a museum just to because it was drawing yeah. so much attention. But yeah, fascinating yeah. story, and I'm glad to see that you're actually writing the book on this. Yeah, and so it's got all the same stuff: kind of a game murder, drag queens, quirky people, voodoo. Um, so it's got all that stuff. 
And uh, the other thing, when the murder made the news, it was right when the first season of American Horror Story was on TV, The Murder House. Oh, yeah. And it turns out there is a lot of bizarre coincidences with that story. So people have been calling that Kentucky's American Horror Story House. And I've even heard some podcasts and people telling stories said that this was the inspiration for American Horror Story. And that's not the case. Um, that the filming had wrapped up and had nothing to do with that. But there are all these bizarre coincidences, you know, the house having been a sanatorium, uh, the fact that two gay guys uh, were buying it and wanted to put a bed and breakfast there. Uh, there's a weird nurse in the neighborhood. Uh, there's just a lot of really bizarre coincidences between the two. But uh, if you hear that the house in old Louisville was the inspiration for American Horror Story, that's not the case. I know a lot of people have been saying it, but it's not the case. It, it may not be the case, but most people I know do refer to it as the murder house. <laughs> yeah, they call it the murder house or the, uh, Kentucky's American Horror Story. Yeah, yeah that's for certain. I want to I want to leave on this, David. You've done all these stories on Old Louisville, and as we've touched on in the show a, a few times here, there is another place in Louisville that has an awesome reputation as a haunted. Uh, neighborhood, which is Camp Taylor. Is that something you've ever looked into writing any stories about? Well, funny thing is, I live in the Belknap neighborhood. I live right across the road from Joe Creason Park. And that's, you know, that's basically getting into the Camp Taylor neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I've heard tons of stories. And I know of a couple places in this neighborhood that uh, are supposedly haunted. But I haven't really... Um, delved into them. I haven't been able to find any information to kind of put flesh on the stories like the ones I've, I've worked on in old Louisville. Um, so I've got kind of something on the back burner, but you know, nothing concrete. I've heard stories, I've talked to people, but I haven't really put anything together yet. Yeah, I think most of the activity there is actually where the old barracks and stuff took place uh, right yeah. across from the zoo and, and that part of yeah. there. And when you're, it's funny because when you're actually going through that neighborhood and you see the housing, it is um, all unique. They're all more like townhouses, but you could tell how that probably used to be some type of, uh, type of military barracks or something because it's just oh, set yeah. up that way. So, yeah, there's one or two actually left from. There's like one of the places that I heard about, supposedly a place where the officers were. Uh, were housed um but yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting neighborhood For, unfortunately there's not too much left actually the old barn they just tore down last year oh. so there's hardly anything left from the original barracks um except a lot of history and a lot of ghosts i guess david it has been an honor and i'm don't say those words uh, very often but it's been an honor to have you on i appreciate it i've been like a giddy little schoolboy sitting here ever since you started talking. So uh, I, I well, really appreciate it more than you realize. Well, thanks. I was, I was glad to be on and uh, look forward to coming on again sometime in the future, maybe when the new book is up. Absolutely. Come on and talk about it. Let me know when the new book comes out. We'll definitely have you back on because I know you got a thousand other stories you can tell from Old Louisville, so it would definitely be a different interview. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, sounds good. Well, thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks, David. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.